Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Cool, sounds good. I'm happy with that. So uh, I can start the live stream right now if you want, or we can give you a couple seconds just to get oriented and stuff or i'm more I'm, I'm good to go i'm in the closet good sound in here no background noise got my sound treatment got the good microphone cool right on rafe you feel yeah. good and ready to go i'm good uh good to go so right. even if the landscapers come it shouldn't be too bad they usually <laughs> come only at times when i actually need it to be quiet oh. I, I don't know how it's like they know they have this sense if i'm recording something or i have some kind of call that's when they show up yeah, that's called Murphy's Law. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go live in three, two, one. Boom. Yuri, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to see you. Yep, thanks for having me. Uh, how are you today? Not too bad. Had a, a heavy sleep, so I'm still kind of, I don't regret it, but I'm still feeling kind of heavy from that sleep. There we go. Well, sleep's a good thing. So I was thinking about, I believe the last time that you and I met in person was at Centennial Park. In Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Centennial Park. I took you out to climb trees and it poured rain on us. I remember, I remember the spider webs almost walked into this <laughs> wall of webs. I forget what breed it was. It's like the David's cross spider that makes the web that span a few meters. I remember I soaked my train ticket and I, I broke the machine <laughs> trying, to, trying to get it in there on the way back. You, didn't you have like an hour long train ride, just like absolutely sopping wet afterwards or something? I don't. I don't think it was that long. I don't remember where I was staying, but I remember, yeah, like it soaked through the bag. Luckily, my phone was okay, but the train ticket got soaked. And uh, yeah, and actually it rained in Vegas yesterday, which is good because we kind of need it. But uh, yeah, here it's like that too, where it rains out of, it doesn't rain often, but it rains yeah. real hard just out of nowhere. Yeah, we got absolutely soaked. And yeah, I felt, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun that I got <laughs> to take you into the trees, but I was like, man, that poor guy, I just <laughs> took a skateboard back to the place I was staying, which was right next to the park. And yeah. you're, you're, you're going a little bit further back. So yeah, so I don't know, just reminiscing. That was a fun day. Um, so for those, uh, for the audience, let's just familiarize them with you. Cause I don't get to do an intro for you um, on this one. So 
you you started training around 2004 and i think if i understand correctly like you got into calisthenics and sort of like tricking early on is that is that the right story i wouldn't say i got into tricking until a little bit later i started off with probably just more like backyard martial arts okay uh, that was probably the early like basic calisthenics backyard martial arts uh you know like took like two free kung fu classes because i had no money so you know you get the one class for free and you go to another place and you get the one <laughs> class for free and then it's like you have enough material to work with there combined with the movies that okay now i can go kick trees and spar with people okay. um it was that the old school strongman books uh was something that inspired me early on like the old uh you know sandow and, and all of that kind of stuff so the early 1900 stuff and um yeah, I'd say that was kind of my earlier start. And then I got into capoeira and tricking a couple of years after that. So maybe like 2005, 2006, um, so, some, somewhere around there. I don't know. It's a long time ago. I don't, I don't remember exactly the dates, but yeah, that's kind of how I got my start. And then just uh, kept going from there. I don't even know what I do now anymore. I just kind of try to do a lot of different things and, and you know, cast many nets and see where I can catch a fish but people know me like for handstands and acrobatics for teaching them anyway stuff like that um i'm trying to think what else i don't know there's a lot of stuff in between i try to do a bit of everything um i'm from cleveland not originally from cleveland but i grew up in cleveland i moved to vegas to to do some kind of circus stuff and i kind of did but i never got like a long-term show contract which is also probably for the best because my perspective now i probably don't want that contract because there's a there's a lot of negatives that come with being locked into something like that uh, i did a lot of traveling and teaching seminars on handstands and acrobatics and stuff uh the world got shut down so <laughs> that kind of threw uh, an interesting uh what's the phrase the a, a thing in the bicycle wheel a spoke yeah. in the wheel yeah. uh so now i'm in folks back into kind of like stunts and movies which is again interesting because 10 years ago when I moved to Vegas my first thought was to move to LA to do stunts because I had a friend I trained with in Ohio who did that and he ended up after struggling for a few years as you do doing pretty well with that so I thought okay like this Ohio is not the place for me I need to go somewhere and do something and I ended up moving to Vegas instead of LA for a lot of reasons part of it was financial uh, just because LA is so expensive to live in and now it, it's kind of pulled me back into it because of that break because of the world getting shut down that's kind of what I'm into now is that going to change in a few years I don't know but I don't want to I don't want to be an old man with regrets is what it comes down to that's good. Yeah. Going on lots of different interesting paths. So you, I remember the first time we met was also in Australia and you and Kit Lachlan. Was I, it or was it in Bellingham? Oh, it was in Bellingham, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Which I just moved back to. Nice. But uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, we met at Kit's seminar here in Bellingham. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. And then, um, and then we were all in Australia together. We were all teaching in Canberra um, at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And we had a dinner at the Chinese place. I remember that. Yeah. yeah that was a fun day. And uh, Craig was the only man there without a beard. So we were all uh, <laughs> giving him a hard time. Yeah. Craig Mallet for folks watching on the sidelines. Good friend of ours. So um, you did the traveling seminar thing for quite a long time. You're teaching a lot of seminars and it seemed like you had 
a lot of success teaching hand balancing specifically kind of in the pole dancing community. Is that, is that accurate or? It was for a while. I kind of moved back. I, it, you know, it's a wave. Yeah. It moves back and forth. So um, that was actually the, the reason I made my first trip to Australia in 2014, which I think was like my first big international tour. I believe it was. Um, so a couple pole dance, Australian pole dancers I met were just visiting Vegas a while ago in like 2012, right? And they were eventually they got a lot more famous. And they were doing handstands, ended up helping them out with handstands. And eventually they brought me into their studio in Australia. And then from there, I, I did a lot more work in Australia. And I've taught at some of the, the pole expos and conventions. So for a while, uh, I was teaching a lot of hand balance in the pole community. Um, now not, I mean, now I don't even know what I'm teaching, but, um, but that, that was the case for a while from what I remember. There we go. Yeah. So, well, let me start with this. Um, I guess I've already started, but let me, let me start with an interesting question here, which is like, at this point, you know, you've been doing movement stuff for 15, 16, 17 years. Um, you've gone through, you've tried out lots of different practices. You started with martial arts, you've done calisthenics, got really deep in the hand balancing. You've done aerialist work, acrobatics, capoeira. Um, what is the purpose of the movement practice for you right now? Or what, what would you say is the purpose of movement practice? It's, it's an interesting question because I know the answer I would have given a few years ago would be very different than the answer I give now. And likewise, that's going to change in another few years. Um, for, a, for a while, it was acquiring skills, right? Like learning whatever different yeah. kind of tricks because I thought they were cool. Then it became like for the performance aspect, okay, being able to do a bunch of tricks isn't enough because now there's this in between, there's these subtleties and it's like, okay, I can do these fancy moves, but putting them together in a performance is a whole different beast because now it's not even about the moves, it's about the transitions and it's about everything in between. But at this point, um, at this point, it's just about learning new things. And then from that, so that the things aren't even important. It's about understanding my own learning process and learning about myself from learning these things. The things might be useful. They might not be that useful. So for me, it's about learning more about my own learning process. And within that, building a greater adaptability to be able to learn more things if that makes sense. So I'm not as focused on, okay, and, and I might be, if it's something new, okay, I'm focused on learning this thing. But then also kind of looking deeper within that is, what if I didn't have the thing? What was the lesson that I learned about myself from learning that thing if I couldn't do that thing anymore? And it, it's uh, kind of like 2020 hit a, a few curveballs at me because I, I also couldn't do handstands a lot of that year. I mean, my handstand training... It, there was a point where I was very obsessed with it and training three hours a day, six days a week. And then I was doing other stuff. So, and then I started traveling and, and running a business. And then you realize that it's hard to do all of those things at once. And when I had less life responsibilities and I had the time to do handstands three hours a day was different than what I had all these other business responsibilities and traveling and all of that stuff. But in 2020, I was dealing with some neurological issues in my hands. So I couldn't practice handstands at all. I couldn't even put my hand on the floor for 
for a large part of that year. So that was kind of a big question I asked myself as well is, is who I am, what I do. And it's like, let's say just a thought experiment. I'm doing a lot better now. So not a big deal. It just took some work, but it's like, this idea is, is what you do, who you are and how much of your identity do you base on what you have or what you do? And what if that got taken away? So just a thought experiment. What if worst case scenario, um, I could never do handstands again. What lessons did I learn from that process, from that journey that would make me a better or more interesting person or whatever, or that would help me learn something else if that got taken away? So that's kind of the the overarching theme that I'm more obsessed with now is you learn the thing. What lessons do you learn from that that you can understand yourself better in case you never did that thing again? Yeah, I think that's super aligned with our perspective, you know, um, what I've come to, which is, I feel like as you mature, maybe as a teacher and as a, as a practitioner, you continually sort of like adopt a frame that, that describes your training. And you might think that the frame is the thing. And then you see some frame that's behind that frame. And it's sort of like you're continuously realizing that what you thought was the moon was just the finger pointing at the moon. Yep. And you have to keep being willing to, to let go of the finger in order to chase the moon. Yep. Um, and that, that's the way that I've been thinking about it a lot. And like, I really, you know, people who've been following this podcast will know I, I quote the, the first stands of the Tao Te Ching pretty much in every podcast. But, um, you know, the, the way that can be named is not the eternal way, right? And uh, the nameless is the mother of all things. The named is the, gives rise to the 10,000 things. So for me, it's not about abandoning frames because you need frames in order to, to start generating actually discriminated th stuff, but it's, it's always being willing to let go in order to see that thing that's behind it. And so one of the questions I had for you is, I guess before I get there, I have this sense that ultimately the way that I, the reason that I practice all the movement practices Part of it's just the sheer enjoyment. It's nice to do, right? Like, but there's something that keeps motivating you coming back to it as opposed to doing some other enjoyable thing, right? And that is this transformation of who I am, right? But then I started asking, well, everybody, everybody has a, everybody thinks that their practice is transformational, right? If you're talking to a surfer, jujitero, dancer, it's like, Everybody thinks their, their practice is transformational, but then you might ask this question like, well, um, if the point is the transformation, not the practice, is the practice actually the best vehicle for the transformation that you're after, right? It could and be, I think, yeah, it just depends on the person and ultimately is one vehicle enough. Right. I was reading something a while ago that let's say it takes seven years for you to, to get to a maybe not master level, but to a very high level in any one thing. So in your lifetime, you could have, I don't know, five or six mastery six. skills. And then that's the question is, do you hold on to the one thing? Maybe because you, maybe you keep learning lessons from that. I, I think as long as that's what it is for me is as long as there's there's still a lesson that I can learn. There's something that forces my own adaptation. And martial arts is a great example of that because there's always a different opponent. 
right? So unless you're training only by yourself, there's always a lesson you can learn from sparring with somebody else. And even different lessons sparring with somebody who trains in a different style or even sparring with a beginner. Because it's funny how much um, people get too caught up in their own practice that, that a beginner will actually get them because they move in an unpredictable pattern. And that that's what it is for me is that if you get, and I've had to kind of quit, not quit, but completely do something else because I caught myself getting into that okay I'm in a pattern now and it what I'm doing has become too automatic to the point that I'm not building adaptations I'm no longer learning lessons from that and if you're not learning a lesson then it's stagnation you can keep doing the same thing and maybe it's okay maybe that's enough to satisfy some people but but I think it's important to kind of seek out that some kind of lesson, something that you can do to continue learning from that. And I, and again, it could be the same thing. There's nothing wrong with doing the same practice for your whole life as long as you continue learning. Uh, and then the other side of that is somebody who chases too many practices and never really gets a foothold in the one. And I, yeah, I have, I have this sense. I talk about two traps, the generalist trap and the, um, and the, the specialist trap, right? So the specialist, the specialist gets stuck in their practice, even if it's not delivering the benefits that they are actually seeking because there's a comfort in competence. And the idea of, of the struggle of being a novice, of feeling unsure is intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side is that the, the, the generalist often is somebody who reaches the point of plateau in a given thing and and gets b- bored and goes and does something else. Yep. It's like, um, you know, and what I've noticed a lot of times is that specialists are often people, not always, but specialists are often people who are not that talented physically. And so they don't pick things up really easily. So once they've once they've gotten something, it's scary to go start again. Whereas a lot of times the most talented people, um, it's just not that rewarding to get to to do the hard work in any one discipline because you can go be good right away at something else. Yeah, and then you get those diminishing returns. Yeah, and then it's like, well, why am I spending time? Yeah, so I I, I like this idea of being a generalist with a specialty, right? Yeah, I want I want one craft that I go back to over and over again, and. And, and get to do the hard work, right? Yeah, because I mean, that's its own lesson is continually refining the same thing until you get each one of those details. And that's a lesson you don't learn unless you specialize to a degree. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna go through the, the emotional difficulties of a plateau because that's gonna teach me something. I wanna regress and have to rebuild my skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to, but, but I will stay with this practice because I learned something through it. And at the same time, I think it's important to always be sort of stepping outside of that comfort zone of that practice that it's familiar and making myself expose myself to something that that um, that 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 make gives me the discomfort of being a novice and also the potential of the rapid gain in knowledge that you get from being a novice. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, anything that I do 
I just look for the lesson. If I can spend a day and I learn one thing from that day, even if even if most of that time was just sitting around waiting, if I learned one thing, I got one useful piece of whether it's advice or feedback or just some kind of introspective thought, then it was a success because that's all. It, and one thing is a lot. It may sound like not a lot, but one thing is what you can remember from an experience, right? You're not going to go to a workshop or a class or whatever. You're not going to remember everything from that class. But if you can remember one thing, that's a lot more powerful. That's kind of, that's that's my goal now. And anything I do is just what was one takeaway from that experience. Doesn't have to be positive, could be negative. It's still a takeaway. It could be a lesson on how I wouldn't do something, but that's still a lesson. Negative examplars can be powerful for sure. Um, I want to come back to that because I think how we discriminate between what types of information we consume is a really important question. But I want to ask first, like, uh, what what are the character traits that you've developed through handstands? How how do you see that as a tool for the development of the individual? So uh, one is just persistence because it's. Yeah, you get these moments of victory, like, oh, I got it. But but you have to be consistent with getting it because getting it once doesn't really mean anything. It could be luck, right? If I close my eyes and I throw things at a target, I'm going to hit that target at least once just from statistics. So number one is the persistence. Number two is this idea of not rushing because the, the thing that's really unique about the handstand is the the advanced steps are achievable or they seem like they're achievable. Like, oh yeah, I can do a press handstand. I can do a one-arm handstand. I'll just put my hand on the floor. And then all of a sudden you can't. It's not like like acrobatics, for example, you do a, you see somebody do a double backflip. You're probably not going to try it if you have self-preservation yeah. instinct. But a one-arm handstand, you might because it's not, it's not dangerous. You don't realize how advanced it is. And even when you do it, people don't realize how advanced it is because lifting your arm up and actually balancing for a few seconds is probably a few years difference of actual effort involved. So the, the one lesson is just persistence. You have to do the same thing for a long time. It's going to be boring. You can do all kinds of different drills, but the reality is they're all the same drill, just variations of the same drill. You have to be okay with training it on a regular basis and maybe not seeing results from day to day maybe doing the same thing and not seeing results for a couple months and being okay with that. So it comes into this uh, idea of delayed gratification. The uh, what's that quote that the day you plant the seed is not the day that you get to eat the fruit. So yeah. it's a lot of that with handstands. Um, you have to, to kind of cut the emotion and frustration out. And yeah, th there are those, those moments of victory that like, yeah, I got it. But it, I always tell students don't, don't get emotional. Don't celebrate until you can do it a few times in a row because that's when you really have it. That's when you have it in your pocket. And there's layers beyond that. It's like, okay, you can do the skill on a good day in your room with perfect conditions. How about outside on a windy day with people watching you with, with a floor that you're not used to? So there's levels of that. And there's just this subtlety and depth in essentially doing the same thing. And it, it teaches you, yeah, the delayed gratification and putting in work for something that you may not see for a while. And that's actually a really important lesson for life because it's like that with any business, with any line of work. The reality is what you're going to go to school for a few years and get a job more realistically is you're probably going to have to 
uh, to pay your dues. Like I'm in the film industry right now. I'm doing a lot of low budget work. Doesn't always pay. Sometimes it's deferred payment. And this is even what I was told 10 years ago, trying to get into the film community is you're probably going to have to work for free for a while before people even know who you are, that they'll want to hire you. And it's this idea of paying your dues without getting something from it right away. And another similar lesson that I'm making a parallel now with the film industry is you do a project. When do you get to see that project? Maybe not for a year. Maybe never because editing is a whole nother thing. So I did a movie last year that I'm super excited about. Is it coming out? I hope so. I think the director is doing a good job editing. But then it's like, I'm telling my family, hey, I'm working on this movie. They're like, oh, cool. When do we get to see it? Like, probably not for a few months at least, because that's how it works. So, so I think that's a really interesting lessons within handstand that you don't see in a lot of other practices, because in other practices, it's like you do something and it's over really quickly. But handstand, you have to continue. And even within the handstand itself, so I'm talking about the overarching practice of doing the reps, but even just holding the handstand, you don't get to turn off. You have to be vigilant. It's And this is what happens with a lot of students too. They hold the balance and they celebrate, think, well, oh shit, I'm balancing. And then that's when they fall because they weren't vigilant about it. So it's that idea of, of being consistent, being vigilant, understanding that the progress won't come right away. And, um, and, and yeah, just kind of taking the, the emotional victories out of it and being cold calculated, methodical among, and those are the, the mental lessons or the, the, mm -hmm. and then the interesting, the other part of it is the fear, which you won't really see with kids because they don't give it, they don't know what they're supposed to be scared of yet. Um, but then with adults as well, you have kind of uh, the physical restriction versus the psychological restriction and also understanding. So there's a level of understanding where you have to come from that because people are going to say, oh, I'm not flexible enough. I'm not strong enough. And a lot of times they are physically, but there's uh, this psychological barrier holding them back because maybe they're afraid of falling. Maybe being upside down is a new realm of, of being for them. And it's not so much that they're not strong enough to hold themselves up. It's that their body won't let them because they're in this state or position where they feel threatened and it's hard to let go of that. So that's an interesting one too, is like you said, being able to regress. That's an issue for a lot of people too, is they want to move forward, but Sometimes you have to regress. Sometimes you just have to, okay, I can do this thing. I'm going to do a thousand more of this thing before I'm ready to move on. And, and there's that understanding of what's actually holding me back. Because people who are not strong enough because of a, they think they're not strong enough because of a psychological issue, all the conditioning in the world isn't going to help them learn how to fall. That's uh, something they have to experience. And the, the balance between those two is really interesting. And how it's, it's a different kind of fear, like fear of a backflip is very different because it happens so fast and you just have to commit to it. But fear of a handstand, it's not really about, oh, I just have to chuck myself into the handstand. No, it's about riding the edge and knowing specifically what it feels like when you're out of control. And it can be a scary moment. And then you build that, that reflex and reaction. So these are just... I guess, what was the question? Uh, lessons <laughs> yeah, from character development, right? We're talking about what's, you know, you're, you, you do the practice, not for the purpose of doing a handstand necessarily, but for what you learn from doing a handstand. Yeah. 
So what do you learn from doing a handstand was the question. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's beautiful. Uh, like, you know, I'm, I have an urge to go to handstands, but one of the questions that I have within physical practice is how do we discriminate what is the appropriate thing to work on, right? So you talked about like, I can take a lesson from anything. It's like, well, that's true. But also like, you only have a limited amount of time on this earth, right? So like I, you know, I started with, you know, gymnastics when I was 15. That was one of my main kind of movement arts that, that, that shaped me. And I did a, a lot of uh, handstand work, right? Like, you know, three minute long handstand holds at the beginning of every class, 40 minutes of handstand or 40, uh, 40 feet of handstand, you know, doing the whole, the floor back and forth over and over again. And, um, and like a lot of the best parkour athletes can do really good handstands, right? So you'd see videos of David Bell or Stefan Vigru, like doing press handstands uh, on the edges of buildings. And so it was just like, in my mind, in the beginning, handstands were just sort of associated with being a, a high level parkour practitioner. And then Ido came along and popularized movement culture. And like, the idea was like a one minute handstand was sort of some sort of like, gesture of competence, right? And I remember getting to a 30 second handstand and realizing that like, yeah, I was getting better at handstands, but I had zero impact on all the skills that I actually cared about. And I wasn't, in, I didn't enjoy it very much, right? It was like, it just didn't matter that much to me. And, you know, I was like, that's not to say that somebody couldn't gain lots of stuff out of it. But I get, got to that point where like, how much time do I want to spend on this versus the other things that I could be spending my time. That, that is the issue because handstand is something that's very needy. It's like a lot of skills you can train once a week and continue yeah. making progress. And handstand is not one of those skills. So it, it takes a lot of time commitment and there's nothing wrong with that. It's up to the practitioner, whether they want that commitment. Like for a while, I was very committed to that. And my other practices did suffer because I had to dedicate those couple hours a day to the handstand practice. And now I'm at the point where I'm not doing handstands as much because I'm doing all these other things and that it's just a decision to make. And it's exactly that. There's a point, it's like anything, there's a point of generalist diminishing returns. So being comfortable on your hands, I would say handstand walking is actually probably for general athletes more beneficial than just standing on the hands because that sensation of balancing, it's really cool, but it's also very specific to the practice. Yeah. But this idea, and you'll see, you know, wrestlers and, and judo athletes and a lot of sports like that use handstand walks as just cross conditioning because it is really useful. And then, and it, again, interestingly enough, a general audition I did for the Dragon. This is a, like a Cirque group, but it's uh, it's a guy who used to work with Cirque and formed his own company. Mm -hmm. And this was a show that was very physically demanding. And it was a generalist audition. So we had to do everything. We had to do tumbling and sprints. And part of that audition was um, press handstand and then just a basic handstand hold. And that's yeah. even if you weren't a gymnast, even if you weren't a hand balancer, as an acrobat so that there's lessons you can learn from that but yeah it's, it's up to the practitioner and it, it is a unique level of body control but but like you said it you have to do what you enjoy and if you enjoy the practice then please continue to do it and if there's something else that you enjoy it's it's your life right yeah so the question i have here is so if we start to think of a hand balancing practice a parkour practice martial arts practice a yoga practice as tools in the cultivation of the individual. Well, in some sense, 
there's there there's some things that are kind of the same. It doesn't really matter. Like you're still facing a problem, whether you're hand balancing or rock climbing or doing jujitsu. But then there's aspects of the way that you solve the problem that are unique, right? Like you talked about the idea that the fear of being on your hands, like you're dealing with, if you're dealing with that, you could be on your hands for a minute, you know, on a wall handstand and you're, you're in fear the entire time potentially. Whereas like with, with a, with a jump in parkour, maybe it's a second that you're dealing with that fear. Right. And I thought about this in reference to like Alex Honnold. Right. So we, I think a lot about breaking the jump and dealing with fear and parkour and how, how, how powerful that is as a, as a kind of self-cultivation tool. But, but I was thinking about Alex Honnold and I was like, the state that I get in before I do a jump between buildings where I have to like, essentially like what I, what I'm experiencing is like a woo way, right? Like it, it starts to feel as if the thing is happening through me and I'm allowing it more than I'm intentionally doing it at a certain point. And I was like, I can't imagine holding that state for two and a half hours. Like, like I, I think that that's what Alex Hallinald had to do when he did that free solo, right? Fell cap. And it's like, that's, that's so astonishing to me. I just think people have no idea like what a mental feat it was to hold the right mental state. It's like the physical aspect of it, I think was easy for Alex, but what, what he did was a, was a feat of mental engineering that was on a, another level completely. So that's kind of a, a tangent, but my, my point here is that the question that I think about a lot these days is how do I know what's the practice for that student to help them become the person that they want to be? Or what, you know, I, I think a lot about the idea of what is the overarching goal? Like what, what is what is beyond the practice, right? Okay, I wanna be courageous, why, right? How, how does that show up in my life? How does the practice donate to that? So, so my question is, what would be the signals to you as a coach that hand balancing was a practice that would be particularly beneficial to an individual? Like, why would you prescribe that? To whom would you prescribe that? I would prescribe it. I think people who are kind of engineering minded, methodical minded do really well with that because it's a lot of introspection and analysis. And it is a lot of like, so maybe the more introverted people I think would also do all with that because it can be a social practice, but ultimately it's you. So that would kind of benefit that kind of personality type. And that was actually a lot of the, a lot of the like private students I had that came to me were people and I have uh, came well a long time ago came from physics background as well were people that wanted those breakdowns because a lot of the teachers out there were more oh yeah you just push and then you do it and then people wanted this kind of scientific mechanical breakdown of that so I think hand balancing works really well for people who are whatever either engineers or scientists or introverts who are mechanically minded who who like that element of the practice where they can sometimes crunch the numbers I'm not a numbers guy I don't like to think about it but you can get those statistics. I think it works well for those people. But at the same time, I would always recommend an opposition to do a practice that's completely the opposite. Because I would also recommend handstands for people who are the opposite, very impulsive to do something fast. Maybe not to take it as 
to high enough of a level because they would get bored, but at least to do it to a basic proficiency, because you learn that lesson of patience that you don't learn again from some from something where the movement happens fast, where it's like you go for it and it's over and you made it or you didn't. So I think it's useful to those types. Um, uh, it's hard to say because I think a lot of different kinds of personalities and student types can benefit differently. And I try to, I try to kind of see where they can get that lesson within that. Like, a, you know, a dancer or somebody who's more artistically minded might have trouble with the, or maybe they won't, but that those constant reps, but then once they get to that base level where they can explore from it. So like I said, I think, and I'm more analytically minded and I, I like to spend time on myself. So for me, it was a good practice. Again, at least for a while, at least it occupied a, a big chunk of my training because of that, because it forces you not to rely on other people. It forces you to find your own motivation to do it every day. And then, and then to look back and kind of analyze those technical points. And interestingly enough, a lot of the very high level hand balancers, which is the, I think the case with a lot of athletes, they don't even know the technique that they're using, but they do it. And sometimes they can explain it, sometimes they can't. And that's not a necessity, but that's what I've found in my personal practice with a lot of students is those analytically minded, introspective type personalities do really well with it as a long-term practice. So that reminds me of this idea that, so I think every transformative practice has a dark side. And this is something that we need to acknowledge as teachers, right? It's like, okay, you're... Parkour, in some sense, is like a, it can be the high level expression of parkour moving on, you know, at, at heights. Um, can be a real interesting place to, 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 to confront your fear of mortality. But I'm also seeing people who I believe are, are literally flirting with death, right? Where they're, 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 they're expressing self-hatred by flirting with the edges of, I could actually die doing this, you know? And, you know, I've seen people who, who do Vipassana meditation and they're just basically deadening themselves to all emotion. And so there's this idea that sometimes we choose our practices because they reinforce our neuroses. They take us in the, the opposite direction of, of what would be the most growing for me. Like just to, like myself as an example, maybe, like I'm, I'm pretty tough-minded by nature. I'm not particularly, um, I don't score highly on empathy and I, you know, I'm, I, I can handle being criti uh, criticized very well. And so I could go to martial arts and I can get hit in the head and I can hit people and I can de desensitize myself to the potential to hurt people. And I can desensitize myself to my own pain very easily within like an, an MMA practice. But maybe what would actually help me grow as a human being is something that actually sensitizes me to people, something like contact improv, right? So, or something like uh, maybe, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, what, is, what is the term? I can't remember it, but like, uh, like co-therapy practices, right? Um, now, I've actually, I, I think that the way that I've practiced martial arts has has taught me a lot and, and, and I appreciate what I have learned from it. And I think I've learned a lot about empathy actually through coaching. But, um, but it's just an example of how like what we seek might actually be reinforcing something that is uh, closing down potentials within us. 
So when would you look at a, a, a practice and say, okay, well, this is, when do you say this is not the right thing for you? It's a good question. I, I don't know if I have kind of a generalized answer to that because it really depends on the individual and what I see. But I think learning a lesson and getting enjoyment for something, if, if you have that, if you legitimately enjoy the practice and the negative aspects of the practice, then it's good to keep doing it. But I, I always recommend something that's, that works the opposite end of that, the opposite extremes, because if you go too far in one extreme, you get very used to that. So if it's not the practice, I think that's the most important thing is just, enjoy, do you legitimately enjoy doing it? Do you legitimately get something out of it for yourself? Right. Was, was the Marie Kondo thing? Does it bring you joy? Yeah. And you, even if it's not necessarily developing someone, if it still brings them joy, you can have that in your life. I have some, some things in my house. Maybe they don't serve a purpose, but I like looking at them. I don't know. Yeah. So, so maybe if I have to move and I, I'll throw them out, but for now it's okay. Because I look at them and I like, I laugh a little bit. Okay. Um, but then, yeah, the other end of it, if, if it's causing you injury, so if you're sacrificing your own health for the long term, like as an example, I don't know, okay, someone has you know, all kinds of chronic wrist injuries from the handstand. Do you keep practicing it? Is the enjoyment worth the potential kind of downward spiral of, of potentially further exaggerating those injuries? I don't know. And that comes with, with a lot of high level practices of sports is at a certain point to practice at a very high level may be detrimental for overall health. And I don't think there's a right answer to that. I think, like I said, you shouldn't live with regrets, but also thinking about the long term. So, yeah, so uh, that would be one question. Does, does the student legitimately enjoy the practice? Number two, does the practice contribute to their overall health, physical and mental, or does it detract from it? And that could be an emotional thing too. Like I've had moments in my handstand practice where I had to step back for a bit because it was one of those plateaus where I was just getting frustrated, you know, a lot of bad days in a row. And sometimes it's not a bad idea to maybe not quit permanently, but take a break and do something else to refresh the perspective um, and yeah the lessons that you learn from it so is doing the practice something that you're continually learning from or no and then do you want to keep doing that because it it's not a bad thing if you do the same thing as long as you continue to enjoy it because what's the overall goal is it why are you doing this maybe that person does that practice as their physical practice and they have something else in their life that's maybe not as physical but it's a craft that they can learn different lessons from maybe not but yeah those would be the factors i'd consider um if i if i can get back to whatever my brain spouted out so enjoyment uh physical and mental health whether it it improves or detracts like like running for example right somebody's jogging maybe they're not getting better at jogging but they do it because there is a health benefit so are you going to tell them to do a new practice because jogging is no longer giving them lessons or is the the jogging something that's still good for them because it keeps them in shape it keeps them the motivated to do something um, and then again, that's the other issue. Are they having, maybe they're jogging so much that it's causing them continual ankle and knee wear, but they feel like, no, I have to keep jogging because it's what I do. Like maybe your identity. 
yeah, maybe you should change your identity because your ankles need a break. I don't know. So it's always something to consider. Yeah, I think the difference between um, transcending a practice and failing a practice can be really hard to see from within the practice. Yeah. Right. And like, depend, there are certain practices that you, that are just costly, right? And that there, there's a point at which they may be worth the cost in your life and a certain point at which they aren't. Like um, I've now, as I'm, you know, now approaching my forties and have a lot of friends who've been in the martial arts for many years. It's like, I know quite a few people who've had enough concussions that they're just not able to spar anymore. It's like, it's just not worth the cost. It's like, if I get dinged, I'm going to have a headache for a long time. I'm lucky. I've never been concussed. Um, but, but if you hang out with enough guys who've been kickboxing for 15 years, you're going to meet guys who who've been hitting the head enough times that like another hit is, is a, is a big cost to them. And so then it's like, well, what did you take out of that practice? And, and can you let go of it and continue to, to grow on the thing that the bigger frame, you know? Um, yeah, like, Jordan. yeah, that's a real good example. Or I, I guess professional athletes too, where they have maybe five years to make as much money as they can before they have to retire, because that's just the nature of the sport. And then again, that's another question. Is it worth it? It might be. It might be worth injuries for five years. You make enough money that you can invest and retire from. So that's also a personal, but, but then, yeah. Is it worth it? Like MMA is a good example. How many hits to the head are you going to take in those five years? And how is that going to affect you in 10 to 20 years? Because Even if you're good, you're going to be taking hits to the head. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, I have this analogy that like, <laughs> professional sports is kind of like monocultureing in it's, it's, it's like resource extraction in the way that you treat a landscape as opposed to like a permaculture, right? It's like, I want to get as much performance in as little time as possible. And I think that often we have this kind of like actuarial table for athletic aging that's based on this. And we, we fail to, to comprehend that like the system isn't set up to to get someone to be successful over a longer period of time, right? And and you can see that this is very different from one thing to another. It's like, if you're a 30-year-old NFL running back, it's like, put a fork in you, you're done, right? But a quarterback, you're just starting to hit your prime, right? In baseball, you probably got three, four years ahead of you. You've only been, you've only been a good player for four years, maybe, by the time you hit 30. So it's very different depending on what kind of activity you take on. But I think it's interesting, like, obviously I think a lot about parkour, but I've been thinking a lot about it recently for a variety of reasons. And one thing I've been noticing is one thing I've been paying attention to within parkour is how bad the incentive structures are versus the level of skill. Like it's really astonishing to me, the level of skill that's been accomplished in parkour, despite the incredibly low financial incentivization of it. But even there where like, okay, maybe you have five years at the top, and if you're, if you're an NFL athlete, it's like, okay, well, you're going to get a few million dollars out of that, right? Um, I'm seeing a lot of parkour athletes who have three, four, five-year peaks where like they're putting out super amazing content really regularly. They're, they're upping the game. They're, they're, they're pro- progressing it. 
And then they reach a point where it's like the next level is just too costly. They've accumulated too many injuries. You know, they're, it's too stressful. They get a girlfriend, <laughs> like, like eight hours a day of training is just not feasible anymore. And you're seeing the same kind of lifespan. You're, you just can't sustain this, this level of intensity and focus for a prolonged period of time. But the difference is for the parkour athlete is the parkour athlete didn't make any money generally. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the question. Is it worth it? Is the glory worth it? Yeah. I don't know. And and then that's the other question is when you're 25, is it worth is it going to be worth it when you're 35 and can't do that practice anymore because of the damage it did to you? Mm -hmm. and, and it's hard to, I think, like you said, from within the practice, it's hard to see that when you're 25, you know, like in tricking, yeah. it's kind of the same thing. I'm not following it as much anymore, but you got guys doing whatever, you know, yeah. quadruple and quintuple twists, and they're doing a race to the fastest, you know, kid who can do five twists. And there's not really date because people haven't been doing these moves. These are new movements and you don't know what kind of damage that does to the body because they're all in their early 20s and they're bouncing back fast, but like, it's kind of similar thing. There's not really a pay structure, right? They're not really making money from that. They're, maybe they're getting known within like a tight-knit community, but the guys who did well building a career out of tricking went into movies, went into stunts, where it's still hard on the body, but they're not being pushed to do, okay, you're, you can do a triple twist, now you have to do a quadruple. Yeah that's what you need to do to get famous and that quadruple of course takes an, an exponential amount more training than it did to get the triple continuously continuously and more risk so yeah it's a, it's another it's always something to consider but yeah like looking at guys like uh, anise or jeremy marinas who were with 10 15 years ago the best trickers in the world and they were doing double twists and they never got to they were doing crazy stuff back in the day that would now be considered not that crazy, but 10, 15 years later, they're still doing the stuff and they've built a career where they're able to enjoy themselves and hopefully make a good living out of something that's not quite as stressful on the body. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you hope you can transition it, but if people are more aware yeah. right, earlier on, like what is, what is this thing that I'm actually playing with? Yep. And you don't have that awareness yeah. when you're 18. When you're 18, you just think, no, nah, I got to do it. And it's you're just driven. You're just, the motivation is there. But so, um, I wanted to ask you about, I, I was listening to a few of your interviews before this and you're talking about identity, right? And I was curious about your thoughts about how your identity grows through these things. So just tell me a little bit about what, what these practices have meant as far as your identity and then how, where's that right now? As you, you know, potentially are looking at maybe even a career transition in how you're approaching all these practices. I, it's an interesting, for a while they were my identity. And I think that's even one of the reasons why I got started within the practice itself is because I thought I needed, right? I needed something to base my identity off of because I thought at that point somewhere deep down that maybe I wasn't interesting enough without. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be that guy who does handstands, that guy who does flips. And then that became the identity, which can be a very dangerous thing. Like we mentioned, if you lose it and bodybuilding is a good example of that, where someone gets used to being that guy and then what happens if they get injured what happens if they can't do that i think there's a huge depression rate among retired bodybuilders for that reason 
right? So, so at a certain point, it was my identity, and it's what I was basing my identity off of. And then, then it transitioned into a few different things. And now what I'm kind of trying to do is separate that. It's like I, I have my cards, but I don't want to show all the cards. So some people, and I, I know there's no right answer to this. I'm not, I don't try to sell myself. And the hope is that, that my personality or whatever I know, whatever I am is separate from the things that I do, that I don't have to display what I do as a way to get people's attention, if that makes sense. Because you'll see it, you go to an audition or you'll go to a class and people that are unsure of themselves in that class, they're, they're gonna warm up doing the thing that they do, right? Like I'm in a stunt class right now, so one guy has a boxing background. So you see him, you know, he's working his drills because it's like, are you actually warming up? And I don't, there's no answer to this. I'm not in this guy's head, but that's the question is, are you warming up or are you unsure of the skills we're working in the class? So you have to let everyone know that you're a boxer, that you've had a decent level in something else. And that's, uh, it's, I guess, too much, to me, that's too much concern over what other people think. And it took me a really long time to just, I guess, be awkward and be happy with myself and not give a shit of people's perception and just be there to entertain myself rather than to try to entertain others. So what I'm doing now is I'm still learning the skills. I'm trying to pick up the skills, but I, I don't want to have to use them. So if I introduce myself, I'm not going to be like, I'm Yuri. I'm an acrobat. I can do a backflip and a handstand. I'm just going to stay and be like, Hey, I'm Yuri. And then later, and I've gotten that comment recently from a few people who like whatever we met, I didn't say anything about myself because I don't like to. And then they look through my Facebook like, whoa, you do all this crazy shit. Why didn't you tell me that? Like, did I have to? Would that have made a difference? Would that have changed your perception of me? What if, what if I don't want to do that thing? Or what if that thing becomes, again, like, because you become this monkey for entertainment. Like, oh, that's the backflip guy. Hey, man, do a backflip. What if I don't want to? So I guess being able to, to keep a low profile and still building the identity from the skills, but maintaining a separation, maintaining a buffer, the buffer where the skills are not who I am. And if like trying to get into the world of film, it's a lot of paying the dues. And obviously I'm using my acrobatic background to help with the stunt stuff, but I'm, I'm not throwing that out right away. That's kind of like an extra. Mm-hmm. I want to have the base of just who I am. And by the way, here's a, here's a card I had in my pocket. Here's the queen card and here's a king if I need that to happen. And part of that is the long-term consideration as well, because it's not that, that I want to get out of acrobatics. I enjoy it, but there's a, a detriment when you do something for a living and when you do something for somebody else versus based on yourself. And with the physical practice, I like doing it for a living. I like doing stunts. I like performing, but ultimately there's a price you pay for that because you're, you're doing it within another constraint that may make you push harder than and what's safe or what's healthy. And again, now that Cirque is coming back, for example, 10 years ago, that would have been the dream to get this Cirque contract. Uh, And now I'm like, uh, I'm not really, I'll do gigs, but I have no interest in a long-term contract like that because now I know that the price you pay and I I don't really want to do a one-year contract of 10 shows a week because I know chances of injury are not low because it's a very high physical workload for a corporation that ultimately is going to, like any corporation, 
you know, like you said, extracting resources yeah. versus the holistic well-being. And uh, and it, that's that's something for me. So I kind of want to separate, yeah, the physical practice because I, film is a little bit better in that regard. Like you're going to have to do one scene and you'll have to do 20 takes and take a bunch of falls. But you don't have to do that every night. You, it's like one hard session and then you can recover, which is unless something really bad happens, which can happen at any point. It's, it's a longer sustainability. But then this idea of not even using the physical traits in general, not even using the skills, because it, to me, it's that idea of how, how can you continue doing this this thing so and that was another like for for acting was a, another lesson I got from one of my teachers saying because he found out that I do stunts he said this is cool but the other thing to think about is you do stunts for you can do it for so long eventually it's hard on the body then you become a stunt coordinator and then your career is kind of not necessarily downhill but it's not going up anymore and then with things like acting you might not even build your peak until your 60s right yeah. like people who are acting like brian cranston i think was the example he used where he was acting for you know 25 years until he did breaking bad when he was 60 and that was like his peak so that's another thing to think about but for me yeah i want to separate the identity i want to separate who i am from what i do and i can combine them if i need to but i can also separate because i don't want to rely on that i don't want to rely oh that's the backflip guy do a backflip maybe i don't feel like doing a backflip right now and then again this idea of what do you want to be known for and what if you can't do that anymore because i also don't want to be the old man who uh you know i, I used to throw a football over them mountains but now my shoulder's shot I used to be an adventurer like you until I took yeah. arrow in the knee. <laughs> um, yeah. So you talked about this idea. Well, I want to go back a second, actually, to we're talking about when is the, the hand bowing practice not the right practice? And I want to ex in, in, kind of expand the scope of that question to like, how do we set up exclusion criteria? Uh, you were talking about the idea that like you can go into any workshop and and sort of um, get something out of it. And it's like that's a, that's an important mindset to have this like active open mindedness. But it has to be connected to critical thinking. Right. Like. I think one thing people don't appreciate enough is that information is is potentially toxic. Right. It's like if you if you go to like six different workshops in a row. And in one workshop, they're like, you know, squeeze your glutes. And then the next workshop, they're like, you know, always use external cues. And then <laughs> the next workshop, they're like, well, posture is, this is the ideal posture. And the next, it's like, you're actually in conflict, right? And now you, now you don't have a clarity in your own mind about what you're doing. And also you are potentially not able to tune into your own signals because you're, you're just, you have so many competing propositional ideas in your head. So one of the things that I think is actually really important question for anybody who's a practitioner is how do I say what I'm not going to consume, right? I, it's like, oh, that's, that's great stuff. It doesn't suit my goals right now. Um, 
it's a, it's a hard thing. I think, I think there's no way to know other than experience. Mm -hmm. There's ways, but you walk down the path and then you know which paths you're not going to take because I'm walking down this trail. Oh, that, that looks cool, but it's a dead end. But mm -hmm. how do you know that it's a dead end? And then also just considering perspectives. And it's a hard place to be if you can separate that and knowing, okay, this cue would probably work for me. This cue is an interesting perspective because the teacher gave reasoning of why it works. But I also understand that I wouldn't use that in my own practice and my own teaching because it's not how I operate, but I still see the benefit of how that would work for somebody else. But that you have to develop a pretty wide perspective. And it, when you're a beginner, you don't know. So basically do something and then if it works, you can keep doing it. And if it doesn't work, you can do something else. And obviously a coach is going to help you with that, because that, but it's part of that self-exploration. But yeah, it's, it's tough knowing when to turn off information. And for me, it was, it was like that as well, where for a while I was trying to learn everything I could. And now it's like, I'm going to learn one lesson. Everything else is bonus. And I'm going to consider something from a pers rather than thinking of right versus wrong considering the perspective of where the information is being delivered and how like a gymnast teaching handstands is going to be different than a circus artist teaching handstands than a capoeirista teaching handstands and all of those overlaps are going to be wrong from one perspective based on the other but if you can do a little bit of all of those and take a step back and say okay i understand why squeezing your butt is really important in a gymnastics handstand because they use that body tension to transfer force i also understand why it's maybe a waste of energy in a different kind of handstand because you want to be relaxed and and that's it's a hard place to be is accepting both of those paradoxical pieces of information and understanding that in a specific situation and in a specific constraint they're both 100 correct and they can both be completely wrong depending on how you look at it you talked about this idea uh in, in some of your blog posts of information versus perspective right so, so you said uh, uh, a novice is generally like needs information. They just, they don't know where to get started. They don't know the overarching shape of it, but then a, a more advanced person knows the basic lay of the land, but needs insight through looking at something from a different perspective. Yep. So maybe we'll come back to that for, and, and, and dig a little bit deeper into just that idea. But I wanted to apply that specifically to like hand balancing, let's say, and the perspective of a gymnast versus a hand balancer versus a capoeirista, right? So if you're a capoeirista, you might want to go train gymnastics or hand balancing in order to strengthen this aspect of your game. Yep. But there's going to be, there's going to be some positive transfer and there's going to be some negative transfer. So how would you guide the teaching process, the learning process, such that you get the best positive transfer from those ancillary disciplines and the least negative transfer? So that's question number one. And then you might say that I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not, my identity isn't capoeirista or hand balancer or, or, um, or gymnast. My identity is mover, right? I'm a, I'm a generalist movement athlete. And in that context, how do I extract sort of the, the principle that makes from all three that creates the best potential to be adaptive to some new context. So how would you look at those two questions? All right, so the, the first one, 
um, is is how to approach it differently. So you have to understand what what the perspective is and what you would consider wrong. So as an example, capoeiristas are taught to look here because somebody might be kicking you and it's hard to defend against a kick when you're looking at the floor. <laughs> Right, so that's a big no in capoeira. But also looking through in terms of just learning the handstand, it's a lot of visual input that doesn't give a point of reference. It's it's an over input of visual, and that's why a lot of capoeiristas also struggle with getting solid in their handstands. One of the reasons because they're trying to do too many things at once. So then it's like this idea of you have to separate yourself from a capoeirista, learn just a handstand, and understand that when you're doing a handstand, looking at the floor, you're that's not a capoeira practice but you're doing it to develop that skill isolated from the practice so that you can come back to it because there is a carryover because you have to separate those variables right if somebody if somebody can't do things in isolation they're not going to be able to do several things at once because it's a it's exponents of how much they have to focus on. So being able to separate, or on the other hand, just being able to do something differently to get another lesson from that. Like I work with gymnasts and they're always so tense. I say, look, you, right now you don't have to point your toes. You don't have to straighten your knees, just be relaxed because nobody's judging you. That doesn't mean you should bring that into your gymnastics practice, but it means that by getting another perspective, you learn how to do something differently and you get another lesson from it, even if it feels wrong, but also it, you can break the patterns because you get so used to these patterns of what's right and what's wrong. But the key is to separate it, to understand like, okay, th this position, it will help you learn a handstand, but it won't help your capoeira practice. But if you separate the handstand practice for the handstand from the capoeira practice, and then integrate those two, you might have a better time learning it instead of always trying to do it within the capoeira game where there's too many things going on at once. So I think that's number one is that idea of being able to separate it because in that separation, in that isolation, or just in being able to do it differently, there's a lesson you can learn that you that you can take bits of that lesson into your other practice and understand what what elements of that are right versus wrong. So that's number one. Number two, for the generalist fitness enthusiast, I like to give multiple perspectives, right? So for example, pointing your toes, it looks nice, but it, from a mechanical perspective, doesn't really change anything. From a, a technical perspective, doesn't really change much. So depends. it depends on how much someone cares. And I just want to give you that option like a lot of people now are going to say banana handstand is wrong. 50 years ago, banana handstand was the basic handstand. So then the question to those people is what, what do you want to do and how much do you care about what the judgment is? If you just want to do a handstand and you have tight shoulders, but enough that you can do it and your back is in a banana, but you're doing it, who is to tell you that it's wrong? If you're doing it and it's not causing you pain or injury, then why is it wrong? But then understanding the perspective, okay, do you want the street credit from gymnasts? Well, now you got to point your toes because that's what they're going to judge you on. Do you want the, the straight handstand line? And why do you want the straight handstand line? There's no wrong answer because it looks nice. Cool. Because I want to learn one arm handstand. It might help. It might not. There's a lot more variables within that. But 
what what are your goals and how much do you care about all the de- and that's something that might come later i didn't care about pointing my toes for a long time and then i started doing circus stuff and that it was really important so i developed that awareness of okay this is when i need to point my toes because it's part of it and then the awareness of turning that off like okay if i'm just doing it for fun do i need to point my feet do i care if my feet are pointed or not and then it's uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So for a general practitioner, I'm just going to give that perspective. How much do you care? And then there's no right or wrong answer. If you just want to get a handstand, you don't care how ugly it looks, go for it. It might help. It might not. Um, if you if you want it to last, there's extra levels that you might have to, to be aware of. And then maybe you can even separate that. Like maybe you can even separate the handstand form from the handstand balance and then combine those two. But that's a very individual thing. It depends on how much someone wants to care. And maybe they transition. Maybe they start as a CrossFitter where they do handstand walks with bent legs. And then they do enough of those that say, hey, I really like hand balancing. I want to take it further. Now here's the perspective. Okay, now you have to straighten your knees. Now you have to point your toes. You don't have to, but if you want to get to that higher level where it's gymnastics-based technique, that's the standard that you have to operate by. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm thinking from my perspective. For me, a handstand is a transitional movement. It's like I I see zero utility in being able to stand on my hands for a prolonged period of time. Like for me- In that sense- Generally, my recommendation for athletes is handstand walks. So yeah, handstand yeah. walks will have the most, they're the, uh, you'll get the fastest uh, progression from that because it's very easy to track progress because yeah. either distance or steps. And that's a very, because with handstand balance, it's like, yeah, there's time, but then there's a lot of other factors that are not so obvious. But handstand walks, and I learned handstand walks first, they're the easiest to learn. I think people who are used to static balance have a hard time, but you're going to have that benefit because you're going to get the shoulder strength. You're going to get the weight transfer. You're going to understand the body tension you need to make a quick weight transfer. And yeah, it's a lot of times more enjoyable of a practice because it's just easy to quantify your gains. Like, Hey, yesterday I could only take five steps, but today I took seven PR. And that's, it's, um, Sometimes it builds the ego. Sometimes it's good not to have that uh, always going for the PR, but but it can make it for a lot of people a more enjoyable practice knowing that they're actively getting better instead of doing the same drill for months without seeing any improvement. And then that handstand balance, yeah. that specific sensation of moving the hands, that's very specific. So that's something that's not really, it's a cool sensation to understand. It's a, a really unique level of body control. But in terms of most athletic pursuits, it's too specific to really make a difference in those. So handstand balance is when you start to get a bit more specialized. And that's the question if you want to or not. I think it's a, it's a good thing for people to learn a basic handstand because it's cool, uh, because it feels as cool as it looks when you get it. But if the goal is just to kind of general cross training for a sport, I think most athletes wouldn't have to go beyond, like if you can do a 10, 20 meter handstand walk, 
that's a proficient place to be where after that you probably won't see any further benefits towards the sport yeah i mean to, to finish my thought like i think that being able to handspring forwards and backwards and cartwheel like being comfortable and 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 roll out of handstands yeah like those are all those are all those all create awarenesses that can that can help you in grappling can help you in parkour like negotiating obstacles getting into weird positions and so a handstand is, is developmental for me um in in that context you know or uh you know body shapes and swinging even there's some transfer there but that that's that's how i look at it right that's that's what i'm interested in is i want to adaptively be able to um to solve movement problems that are come out of dynamic environments of running jumping and climbing in the world and dealing with other opponents and i feel like a handstand is about getting comfortable inverted and getting comfortable with having ways to get out of inversion safely yeah absolutely um and so then that's yeah so it's like well from that perspective, what's necessary? And then where, what would be my best source? Is it gymnastics? Is it hand balance? Is it circus hand balancing? Is it capoeira, right? And, and, and then there's also the difference between like, okay, for me in theory, capoeira contains the most relevant information, right? It's, it's the most coupled to having a, a wide variety, but often the pedagogy of capoeira is somewhat less well-developed. So Capoeira teaches the most adaptable form of handstand because of the nature of the beast, because you have to move with somebody else that's a completely uncontained variable. So gymnastics would probably have the best structure, even though it's still questionable how it's taught, but that kind of the, the most structure of how to learn the handstand. Um, circus hand balancing, the way, it's, the way it's taught to circus artists is usually just very uh, high numbers. In, in most kind of circles, just if you can do this much volume, your handstand's probably not complete shit because you can do that much volume. And in Capoeira, like, it's it's hard to say. I would say for a generalist, probably some basic gymnastics classes are the best places to go, even though for the handstand development, because it may not be completely relevant to the practice, but the structure of how they teach it is more developed, it's more standardized. In Capoeira, it teaches you the most adaptable form of the handstand, but the way it's taught, it, it's it's a system that's oftentimes not friendly towards beginners because the way it's usually taught is, okay, do it. Now do it while I throw a kick at you. Adapt. And a lot of people do adapt, but a lot of people don't because they need more of that structure. And they, like I, another kind of parallel is the way they teach active hip flexibility in, let's say, ballet versus taekwondo. In ballet, even though maybe a lot of the movement cues don't apply, the system that they have for learning to lift your leg up high is a very well-developed system where they start on the floor and it's very specific and then they gradually work their way up with these movements and then in, in something like of course not all schools but in taekwondo it might be like get into your split okay i push you down now kick really high and it i'm not saying that's always the case but it's just one example and it depends on the student but it's nice when there's uh a proven system, even if it's not necessarily 100% applicable, that would probably, if your goal was hip flexibility and you wanted to do it through a training practice, ballet might teach you more 
than certain martial arts practice just because of the system of how it's taught and how it's been developed and it's uh, it's easier to find those steps and that's the same thing with kind of gymnastics versus hand balance or capoeira if your goal is to learn handstand you'll probably get more out of a basic gymnastics class not saying that you wouldn't learn from those other classes, but yeah, like you said, sometimes it's just the way it's taught is not necessarily the friendliest towards all learning styles. Yeah. So I have the sense that if you, if you, if you go to a capoeira class um, or you spend some time with capoeiristas, you're going to meet some capoeiristas who can move incredibly well on their hands. And you're going to meet some who might've been training for 10 years who haven't achieved the, the most basic level of competence on their hands. Right. Exactly. Whereas you won't really meet anyone who's done 10 years of gymnastics classes who doesn't have fundamental competence on in a handstand. Yep. Um, but I think there are more that someone who's learned to do gym, uh, a handstand in a gymnastics way is going to be less adaptable to new situations and will have more negative transfer from the expression of the skill in that environment to the expression of the skill in other environments versus the capoeiristas. So it's like you get there faster and more consistently, but what you get is limits you more in sh showing up into other places. Do you have the same sense? Yeah, it can't. And ultimately, it comes down to the goals and understanding. And, and absolutely, because the gymnastics handstand is taught as a system, mm -hmm. it becomes less adaptable, it becomes very closed off. And you'll even see that within capoeira, where you could tell somebody was a gymnast and they, mm -hmm. they go up in the handstand and then the, the foot is right in the face because they set themselves up for it because their movement is predictable. And then they become, I guess, more resistant to change and adaptation. But then there's a trade-off that if you do gymnastics for a few years, you'll probably learn a decent handstand. Whereas if you do capoeira for a few years, you may learn the handstand and you may not learn it at all. And you may not get a lot of specific instruction towards learning it other than do it. So yeah, it's, it's always that trade-off. Like I would say, I would say if you're doing a capoeira class, you shouldn't be doing it because you're trying to learn handstand. And if you learn handstand from it, then it's the benefit. If you're doing a gymnastics class to learn handstand, understand the, the specificity of the application. And I always tell in my handstand seminars as well, like a lot of the common knowledge of handstands comes from gymnastics because it's a system that's well-defined that's been around for a while, but a lot of the cues are also very specific to that system. And if you apply them elsewhere, you probably will see those diminishing returns or, or sometimes negatives. So yeah, it's, it's the trade-off. It's always, there's no answer. I feel like I've had a really hard time learning a corkscrew because adopting a, um, a, you know, an off access flip has been very difficult because of my gymnastics background, right? Straight flips were so enforced. This idea of playing with those axes that are off of the main one, uh, it's very hard to adapt after a certain point. So in one of in one of the interviews you were talking about, like you and I kind of have a similar background, which we've taught a lot of the stuff that we know to ourselves, right? And so that's that's great because we have a lot of perspective to share with people. We've <laughs> we've we've failed to do it the right way enough to really know why the right way is the right way often. Um, and then you know, uh, then there's the advantage that you know. 
that sometimes you know you can just get you can get the right way to to scale it up to, uh, from the beginning. It's much easier. Like the kids who came into like corkscrew for me, I'm I'm still like stuck in the mindset of parkour from 2010. Like a corkscrew is a difficult skill to learn for in my mind, right? And there are thousands of 13 year olds who see it as a basic skill to learn, right? It's yeah, same thing. Like I'm still, and I'm still, in, I'm trying to get them back as well and yeah. trying to, I've been spending last like year or two rebuilding a lot of the habits that I wish I hadn't built 15 years ago because they're still stuck. But yeah, same thing. I see, I still see corkscrew as a difficult move, but it's like <laughs> most people now in the current state of things are doing it in their sleep. It's like not even a basic move. Yeah, it's a, yeah. So so my, the, the, what I'm interested in here is getting your thoughts on how we set up the learning process for our students and for our communities such that we are um, giving them good scaffolding up, as say gymnastics does, while limiting the, the negative transfer in the way that Capoeira does and creating more adaptable movers, right? So just maybe this is interesting as a, as an expression. So my son is six years old. He'll be seven in August. And he, you know, he's, he's done some gymnastics classes, some parkour classes. He does martial arts, you know, he does rugby and he plays with me and I've been flipping him around since he was a tiny baby. Right. So we have a trampoline and uh, his friend got into doing front flips last year and he learned how to do front flips, but he's still kind of afraid of them. And then he lost the ability. And then it was a big deal because he was like discouraged because he'd lost the ability. But then he was in these parkour classes and he was much more competent really than the other kids. And so like now his confidence raised up and then he was starting to front flip into the pit and he's starting to get it. So then he's doing the, his front flips on our trampoline and, and he's coming. And then um, on Friday or a couple of days ago, He's like, dad, I want to do a backflip. And I was like, okay, you know, and, and I was like, you just want to try it, you know? And he's like, yeah, I just want to try it. And I was, I was like, okay. So I was like, I, I could spot you. I could do all this stuff. But I was like, let him have his process. Right. So I, I just stood there and watched him and he, and he jumped sort of like over his shoulder, looking backwards, landed on his shoulder and bounced up onto his knees. Right. And he did that a few times. And then he started to sort of like make it onto hands and feet. And then he started going more over the top, right? And within half an hour, he basically taught himself to do a backflip. And so there's something amazing about that, about that ability to scaffold up a skill and to sort of figure it out in your own process. And I was giving him a little bit of cues, but I was trying to limit my coaching of him because he's six years old. like if he learns a backflip today or he learns a backflip a year from now, it really doesn't have that big of an effect on his development, right? Having the skill. What's more important is how he acquires the skill to me and how that, how that allows him to keep going or what his motivational status is. He doing it because he's enjoying it, right? Versus me like forcing him to do it. So I think there's, there's something really powerful about this self-organization, but there's also there does seem to be points at which the way you approach something can set you up for difficulties down the road. And you can, you can go into a developmental cul-de-sac without realizing that's what you're doing. Like I, I learned to do a, a split foot front flip while 
kicking my back leg up. And it turns out that it, from my context for flipping over things, that's a really bad habit. And I did it long enough. Well, here, here's the reason, because it's very easy to flip with, with your foot on one on an elevated surface, but that constraint, um, it, it, um, it incentivizes kicking your leg. It's just the best solution, but it makes it very hard to actually take it to flat ground and go over things with it, which is the purpose of the upfront flip for me. Right? So that's a, that's, that was a developmental cul-de-sac for me. And I've been struggling for years, literally to get out of it. And I'm mostly out of it, but I just hurt myself recently because my body, you know, yep, was like, Nope, never mind. You thought you, you thought you'd learned it, but in this new context, this tree branch is scary. We're going to revert and you're going to balk. Um, so how do we, how would you think about that balance between giving, giving a clear scaffolding to the athlete while leaving enough room for them to explore and have autonomy? And how do we recognize the, the developmental cul-de-sacs and help athletes um, navigate away from them to the more developmental pathways without, uh, without taking their autonomy? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question or a, a good concept, this idea of, and I, I've gone in my own teaching phase as well. I've gone through that because I used to, back when I coached gymnastics, I, I was so proud of, oh, I could pick out these many things that they did wrong. And this is <laughs> supposed to be. And now I'm kind of the opposite of that. Now it's like thinking about it from a deeper perspective, the less you say, the better. Because oh, it's like the parent, you know, who, who gives their children everything. And then what happens when they're out on their own, they never actually learn to work for themselves. And they don't have that understanding of the process. That being said, if you just let everyone out into the wild, they're going to build bad habits. So I think of it, give letting them first of all, as with kids, especially making sure they're doing it for themselves and not for somebody else, because that's where the true motivation lies. Like they're, they're not going to keep doing it. If they're doing it only because somebody else is watching, they're not going to keep doing it for themselves. And I, with adults, it's a little bit different, but it's similar thing. Like, are you doing this for your own development? But yeah, this idea of minimalism and saying as little as possible, and then saying the one thing that can set somebody on a path in the right direction without giving it to them. So not giving it to them for free, but maybe, you know, they're, they're dizzy. They don't know which way is north is say like hey that way is north go in that direction and it's a it's a difficult balance i think knowing the process knowing what is going to help somebody's development and what isn't and and giving not not all of it but giving just enough of a bite to send them in the right direction so they can make their own process and later on when i was coaching gymnastics as well i kind of evolved a little bit and i wanted students to to be able to catch their own mistakes, not just to tell them, hey, this is what you have to do because I said so, to understand why something may not be the technique they wanna do. And that was a big thing for me, not when they landed the trick, that's cool too, but when they made a mistake and they caught their own mistake and were able to fix it without getting told what to do because that transcends the flip or whatever they're trying to do, that's personal development of understanding the learning process and why and yeah it's like that if you teach too much if you 
um, if you're on somebody too hard, they don't learn their own process. And that may be useful for building a high level athlete, right? Like a high level hand balancer, circus artist, gymnast, they kind of do that. They're soldiers and they listen to the cues. They don't really understand why they're doing it, but because they're getting supervised in such a micromanaging manner, they can get to that high level because they're not allowed to stray from the path. But then how does that help their own development? Because what happens when these athletes become coaches, they're not effective coaches because they haven't built their own path to follow. They've followed somebody else's and the only perspective they have to teach somebody is the orders that they followed for their journey. So it's a balance. And I think it depends on, again, what the goal is. If you have somebody who's a high level athlete, you may have to be on them, but always giving room for personal development. And I think that's a really important thing to do as a teacher that's is just to step back and allow people to make mistakes and don't say anything right away. Like let kind of see if they figure it out on their own. And then if they do a few repetitions in a row, of the same thing, then it can become a bad habit. That's when you kind of set them on the path. I think that's really important as well as understanding the habits. And then if they keep making the same mistake in a row without catching it, that might be setting something up for a habit that may not help them later on. Yeah, it's interesting. There's there's this thing where, um, so there's some research in the motor learning community that shows that less frequent cueing is associated with better skill acquisition. So they did, you know, they'd had like a coach cue an athlete, every rep, every fifth rep, every 10th rep. And the best athlete development was every 10th rep. And one of the, uh, I was listening to Rob Gray, people who check out his podcast, the Perception Action Podcast, but I, I, I don't know that he's des- describing a potential mechanism for this, which is actually that, um, you 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 shouldn't be where that worried about errors in an athlete's learning process that are one-offs you're yep. only looking for patterns because you don't if, if an athlete does one does something wrong on on a on an individual repetition there's just going to be noise in there and in their movement right and so if you correct that from one repetition to the next you're asking them to devote attentional resources to trying to fix something that may not even show up in the next rep, right? Or maybe probably won't show up in the next rep. And if you, if you identify an error in every rep from across 10 reps, now you're asking that athlete to devote their attentional resources to 10 things that might not even actually be persistent patterns in the way that they, they show that skill. Right. If you if you if you wait for that tenth rep, now you're much more likely to have identified something that's a consistent pattern that they're engaging in. So that's a really useful thing, I think, for coaches because I think sometimes we we feel like if we're we get paid to give them information, that's one way to think about it, right? Um, and so you might feel like you're not doing your job unless you're proactively intervening, but your intervention can actually interfere just as easily as it can improve. So I think that's an important concept. And then the other thing is, I think as coaches, we, you know, there's this idea that only perfect practice makes perfect, right? Um, and that if, if at any stage in the developmental process, there's, there's errors that, um, that somehow they won't, they won't get there in the end. But um, I was reading Dexterity and its Development 
uh, by Nicolette Bernstein, one of the articles in the end is talking about how like a vast majority of our movement learning as children is actually like the, the, the strategy that gets us functional enough doesn't even look anything like the ladder strategy. When a child is learning to walk, the motor control that's associated with early walking is almost completely different from the pattern that develops later. And you couldn't, you can't correct the child to the correct form of walking <laughs> because they, they're, they don't yet have the abilities, but they have an ability to walk that's, that's congruent with their physical capacities at that stage. And that will sort of self-correct over time. So, so there, I think there's a lot of that, but there is these places where, where a pattern can get habituated that definitely doesn't help or, and, and, and I think gymnastics actually like, you know, uh, a lot of people would recommend gymnastics for every kid. And I'm, I'm a little bit more like, there's some good in there. There's also some, some limits because I think there's a way in which it enforces very specific uh, motor patterns that don't actually transfer well to other sports. Right? Like you don't want to be pointing your toes all the way down on every like stride if you're sprinting, which, mm -hmm. you know, in every other sport you're sprinting and you want to sprint to sprint correctly, you know, in a way that's adaptive mm -hmm. to that sport, you know, or, um, you know, your body line characteristics and some of these things. Well, yeah, a lot of that, that's the problem, not the problem, but a lot of the cues are visual. So they're meant to create a visual image and the visual image is not necessarily functional towards no. biological adaptation mechanisms. It just looks nice. Yes. Yeah. So, so having people focused in their early development on an aesthetic output is probably not the most developmental. Yeah. Well, I think that parkour generally is a better version of early locomotor, you know, behavior for people to to engage in. Obviously, it's less available. But interesting enough that the like basic kids gymnastic classes from two to four years old yeah. is is essentially parkour. Yeah, it's, it's not really pointed toes. It is yeah. a lot of walking on beams, yeah. jumping and landing, like rolls, just rolling on the back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So. Um, but I think those are just really useful things for all of us to think about as we're developing for people who are in the audience, who are coaches, you know, how do we balance these, these, uh, this, this need to scaffold up and to help people avoid those cul-de-sacs versus recognizing and respecting self-organization and not over-coaching. So um, we're running towards the end of the time that we have for, for the interview section of this. So before we finish, um, I just would uh, like to, uh, to let, uh, let people know where they can find you, how they can work with you. What do you got going on right now? Kind of too many different things at once right now. I've had yeah. to, I've had to trim the fat because I can't do everything at once. So, so I have some handstand courses. I have like a handstand ebook, online materials. I'm doing some online coaching now, but not as much because that's one of those things I've had to do less in to focus on the movie stuff. And it's just, it's life. I kind of hit that point where I was trying to do too many things at once and getting overwhelmed. And, um, but I am available now for workshops as well within the US if there's interest, depending on how things go with the current state of affairs. Uh, but yeah, you can find me on my website. It's yuri-mar.com, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Do I have, oh yeah, YouTube. I don't have the, that, that's all old school social media. I haven't gotten into the TikTok or anything. No, it just doesn't appeal to me. I don't see. And it's one more thing that I have to do. 
I'm trying to spend less of my life in social media. And also yeah. I don't like the CCP and don't want to do anything that is potentially feeding them lots of information. Yeah, the corporate, have enough information to work with as it is. Not that I want to feed Google or, or Instagram or Google or Twitter particularly, but uh, I still think they're one step they're above. Slightly them. less sketchy though. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, okay, cool. So you're, you're on there that people can find you for online coaching. You've got courses online. They can find all that through your website. Um, yep. yeah, definitely recommend it. Um, yeah, that'll be all for the live stream. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining me, Yuri. And now yep. we'll have, uh, our, uh, our Academy students will, will jump on and, and offer you their questions. Hey, you reached the end of another involvement play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription. So you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve with Play podcasts. But adios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.